All right. So uh, we're studying the Gospel of John. Last week we saw on Palm Sunday how the crowd comes out and enthusiastically welcomes Jesus. They acknowledge him as the Davidic heir and Messiah. They request deliverance from him in their mind, thinking political deliverance from the Romans. And so they're subsequently confused when Jesus teaches that he actually uh, will suffer and die, and that is his understanding of his mission as Messiah. And we see different reactions going on. The leadership is upset by the increase in the crowd's enthusiasm for Jesus. Jesus, however, teaches that he and his followers need to focus on pleasing God the Father rather than the crowd or the world, even when that involves pain, suffering, or death. The incentive he gives is that he says God the Father will reward people who are willing to take that hard and difficult path in this life, whereas the world's seemingly easy path leads to eternal condemnation. And then he told us that the point of that suffering and excruciating death he's about to die is to defeat Satan and rescue those who accept Jesus' message from Satan's kingdom of darkness and transform those followers into sons and daughters of light. And so in hindsight, we can see that everything the crowd says is true as Jesus goes into Jerusalem. It's just different than they expect. For example, when they hail Jesus as the provider of salvation, that's true, but they don't realize he's going to provide spiritual salvation before political salvation. When they hail him as the Davidic heir who acts with the authority of God, they don't realize he also has a divine nature. So yes, he has the authority of God as God's Davidic heir, human representative, but also as God himself. And they hail him as Israel's true king, but they don't realize he doesn't intend to actually enforce his authority as king politically at that point in time. So it's one of those things uh, that fascinates John where people say things that are true, but they don't even appreciate all the ways that they're true at the time. All right, so that brings us to 1237. And this is one of those passages which if we weren't plowing through the whole book, um, I would skip over because it's frankly unpleasant and confusing But one of the benefits of being willing to do book studies and go through entire books is that it forces you to wrestle with even the passages in the Bible that are difficult or maybe even off-putting. So that's what we're going to do today. So let's start in verse 37 of chapter 12. We're told, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. So I think we've reached the point where John is reflecting back on Jesus' entire public ministry. So when he says all these miraculous signs, he's talking about all the signs from turning water into wine to raising Lazarus from the dead. And he says when by they he means the majority of Jews 
So a majority of people have still not believed Jesus' claims about himself. And John argues this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And for this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their ear, sorry, they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about it. So this is an example of what we would call um, a typological fulfillment. John's not thinking that when Isaiah wrote these verses, he consciously has in mind that someday there's going to be this guy named Jesus and these things are going to happen to Jesus. Um, This is written about Isaiah and his generation, which we're told experienced a hardening in their time so that a majority of the Israelites during the time of Isaiah did not respond. And as we think about hardening, um, it's certainly a concept that Americans don't like. To us, I think we picture someone who's neutral towards the gospel or neutral towards God and God comes along and programs him like a computer so that he makes them go from being neutral to not interested in God. And that's never what scripture portrays. And I think the best way to understand how divine hardening plays out is to look at the scriptural examples of it One of the most famous is Pharaoh. Scripture tells us sometimes that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but other times it tells us God hardened his heart. Think about how that happened. The way it happened is God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh that God is real and Pharaoh needs to let his people go. So the way Pharaoh's heart gets hardened is basically God telling Pharaoh what he needs to do. And we see that same dynamic in Isaiah's time. The way the people of Isaiah's generation get hardened is the Lord sends Isaiah to speak to them. So, for example, go back to Isaiah I think we're looking for chapter 6. So part of what he's quoting is from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and Isaiah's reaction to seeing that vision is, I'm sinful, I come from sinful people, woe is me. And God responds to him that you are going to be my message, messenger. And he says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. 
Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Okay? So the way God hardens the majority of Israelites during Isaiah's ministry is he sends a prophet to tell them exactly what they need to do to be saved. So the message Isaiah delivers that actually hardens their resolve to reject God includes stuff like this. So go back to Isaiah 1. So for example, look at verse 5. After explaining that Israel's sinful and need to repent, he says, Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. And skip down to 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, They shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the way hardening occurs, ironically, is through Isaiah telling them exactly what they need to do to be saved and warning them of exactly what will happen if they aren't. And by tuning that out, they become even more hardened to the salvation that God wants them to experience. So it's almost like, imagine these people floating next to the sinking Titanic, and there's this guy in this lifeboat that keeps tossing these life rings out to the people in the water, and one of the people in the water says, who's that dude? Yeah, that's the guy that throws these annoying orange things at us. I just wish he'd go away. And the more the orange things come and hit them, the more they knock them away and think those things are annoying, right? And so it's this mysterious process where the person's own choices work in concert with God's divine decree. But the message that Isaiah wanted people to understand is that process isn't something that happens apart from God's sovereignty, it both the choice to believe in God and the choice to reject in God are things that happen underneath the sovereignty of God. Okay? So then John comes along and Paul's going to do the same thing in Romans 9 through 11 and says the same things happening during Jesus' ministry. God hardens the hearts of the majority of Jews during Jesus' ministry by having Jesus walk around and do miracles and heal people and tell them exactly what they needed to be saved. And the more they listen to that and reject it, the harder it gets to reach them and the closer they get to a complete rejection of the salvation that Jesus offers. All right? Okay, so first, questions, comments, concerns so far about that. Yeah. So was there, just out of curiosity, was there anybody else, because we've seen it like in every like, chapter, it seems like, where Jesus is performing signs and miracles, like the high priest 
Pharisees, they see that he's performing signs and miracles, and they're like, oh, people are going to believe him. Was there anybody else performing signs and miracles? Or, you know what I mean? Because otherwise, because it, it even says, they, oh, he's performing these signs, and everyone's going to follow him and think he's the Christ. How can they not... Sure. So we don't know the answer to that. So the question is, are there other miracle workers running around Palestine the same time Jesus is? Um, We don't know because we know very little about what's going on outside the text of the Gospels. So we know um, if you go way back hundreds of years, there are miracle working prophets in Israel's history. We know from Acts that there are people running around the Roman Empire saying they can do supernatural things because Paul encounters some of them. What we don't know is how common that is, except for maybe you could say, I think there's a one reference where Jesus is being accused of using the power of Satan to cast out demons. And he says, if I use the power of Satan to cast out demons, then who do your sons use? The implication being that there were other people who could perform exorcisms that were part of the religious establishment. But we don't have any sort of story about those people, you know, so we don't really know how common that was, would be my answer. It's a good question, but just don't have the evidence to answer it. Anything else? Yep. That message spread. I don't know what your thoughts were on that. Or... So, yeah, that comment can take us in all sorts of interesting directions. I do think it relates in this sense. Like, why would John put this stuff in his gospel? He tells us the purpose of the gospel is to persuade you to believe in Jesus. As Americans, we hear this doctrine, we think that's so off-putting. Why do you even need to tell us about it? I think the reason it's in there is to explain what was a significant problem to John, or issue might be a better word, which is that the majority of Jews have not accepted Jesus. Because if you think about what Jesus is saying is, I'm a Jewish guy, I'm the Davidic heir, I'm the one that you've been waiting for, So if you're a Roman, I think you would naturally ask, well, if all that's true, why didn't a majority of Jews believe him, especially the ones that were most knowledgeable about the Old Testament? And so I think from John and Paul's perspective, that is an issue they need to explain to people in the first century. That's a question they're naturally going to ask. And so they're telling you, we think that's part of God's plan. 
And God, for whatever reason, I think Paul goes into more details about it in Romans than John does here. That's the way um, God wanted to reach the Gentiles and that someday there'll be a change and that you'll have a revival in Israel and there'll also be um, this great outbreak of faith in Israel at that point in time. But to go back to your question, what, what you also have to remember is that there's nothing before A.D. 70 to suggest that Jesus and his followers thought they were breaking off from Judaism. So it looks to me like they think they are the next step in Judaism. They go to the temple throughout Jesus' ministry. They participate in festivals during Jesus' ministry. After Jesus goes back to heaven, they continue to go to the temple whenever they can. There's no indication they walked into the temple and said the animal sacrifices need to stop because Jesus has been crucified. They seem to think their faith in Jesus is perfectly compatible with Jewish practice. And so the big issue in Acts is, well, do Gentile believers have to start doing everything we're doing as faithful Jews? The answer at the council is, no, they do not. It's not necessary. But they also don't say, and Jewish believers in Jerusalem need to stop. And so the only reason you get this divergence is that the authorities that control the temple and the synagogues throw Christians out. And so part of the reason all this seems strange to us is that for 2,000 years, we're used to thinking of Christianity and Judaism as different. But I don't think there's any reason they had to be, and that sure doesn't seem to have been the goal of the first generation of Jewish Christians. And I think Messianic Jews would tell you they think their practice of Judaism, which is limited by the fact that there's no longer a temple, is perfectly compatible with their faith in Christ. So, great question. Um, So, you know, we have this veil of the Holy of Holies being rent. Um, I think that symbolizes that Jesus provides access to God the Father, and so some of the limitations of the old system pass away. So it's not like nothing has changed. Um, I think the vision Peter has in Acts would suggest that Jewish believers are free to stop following some of the restrictions of the Old Testament, like related to diet, although many of them choose to continue to follow that. I mean, that's part of the back and forth you see in Galatians between Paul and Peter, that some of these things are not necessary for us to practice. But if they felt like it helped their faith in Jesus, there seems to be no prohibition on that. And even very near the end of Acts, Paul goes to the temple and takes a vow. So as long as it promoted faith in Jesus, and as long as you didn't do anything to exclude a Gentile or tell a Gentile you must be circumcised or you must become an Israelite to be saved, they seem comfortable continuing most Jewish practices. Yeah. 
Well, Galatians portrays a conflict where Paul kind of views Peter as backsliding and kind of confronts him about it. Um, But, you know, it's Peter who has the vision and meets with Cornelius and really is integral to the acceptance of Gentiles into the Christian community. It appears later on he got pushed back from other Jews and, as Paul portrays in the beginning of Galatians, kind of backslides and thinks, no, I need to separate from Gentile believers. And Paul says, no, you know better than that, Peter. And then they seem to get on the same page again. Anything else? So to really get us off track and build on what you were saying, here's some food for thought. So we would say now that the gospel message is that you should have Jesus as the object of your faith because what he did for you is the means of your salvation. And I would argue that anyone who's heard that message and rejects it is subject to condemnation, as John talks about with his gospel. When did that change? So, for example, I would say David Abraham didn't know there was a guy named Jesus who would show up in the first century. So I don't think God expected them to consciously have Jesus as the object of their faith. I think they understood that the Lord would provide grace, and so the Lord was the object of their faith. They didn't know the Trinity. They didn't know about Jesus. When did having Jesus as the object of your faith change? Did it happen the moment he died on the cross? Does it happen the moment the message reaches your community? Does it happen when that light reaches you individually? That's what I'm pondering. That's why I want your thoughts. Because I I would say, not that my opinion matters, but I would say that, you know, a, a person who's been, like, devoted to Yahweh and practicing but he's on the outskirts, or you know, their family's on the outskirts, did get to Jerusalem for the events of Jesus' death, and then suddenly comes into interaction with one of his followers who talks about Jesus, I feel like in that moment, he has to make a salvation switch. Like, I think... Right. And then the God's Spirit would be, like, convicting him in that moment, like, this is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that, that you have been following. So switch your... That, that's what I tend to think, too. And I think John would be the gospel that gives you evidence for that because Jesus argues repeatedly in John to the religious leaders, if you genuinely were a follower of the Lord in the Old Testament, you would recognize what I'm saying is true. And so I think the argument is that those who genuinely have a relationship with God before Jesus eventually recognize Jesus is true. So, but there are more difficult issues. I don't think scripture really ever tries to give us a clear answer of what happens 
to people who've never heard anything about God. I think part of the reason it does that is because, by definition, if you know enough to ask that question, you've been exposed to Scripture. And so what it does say clearly is that if gospel has been presented to you, you're responsible for how you respond to it. And I think that's true going back further. Whatever revelation of God you've been given, you're responsible for it. If you reject it, you're subject to condemnation. I think scripture makes that point clear. I don't think scripture ever tries to deal with the theoretical person who knows nothing. I think you could... I think the best, probably safest answer is to say, we believe God is holy, just, and loving. We've seen how merciful and gracious he is with treating us. Therefore, I can assume he will be fair, gracious, just with someone like that. Oh, yeah. Hit me with Second Peter. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> This isn't hard enough. Let's go to Second Peter. Love you. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, so what she's referring to is a passage in Second Peter um, that suggests that Noah preached to people during the flood, and then there's even somewhere in there a reference to Jesus preaching to people in hell. I can't remember exactly where it is. Does anyone know? I can't remember, um, but one thing I would say, probably, let's go there. Thanks. Yeah, First Peter, sorry. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay, so one thing is no one agrees on what that means, like Everyone's like, well, that's confusing. You know, it's like, well, great. I'm glad I paid 50 bucks for this commentary. Thanks. <laughs> I knew that already. Um, so some, one popular idea throughout the centuries has been that this is something that happened while Jesus is in the grave. But the assumption is that prison is talking about people who aren't believers. And so this wouldn't, I don't think anyone thinks this would be a second opportunity to get out of 
the grave, Sheol, or hell, whatever you want to call it. So I don't think this passage helps us with the problem of people who've never heard. But that doesn't mean I understand what the passage is about. But kind of one of the principles we try to follow in dealing with Scripture is don't base big ideas on unclear passages. Try to use the clearest passages to help you understand the unclear ones. Base your big ideas on things that are repeated in Scripture and are clearly presented. So I would caution against trying to do much with that passage because I don't think anyone's confident they know what it means. Anything else? Yeah. So, yeah, it looks like, and we don't know exactly when, sometime after the resurrection, early, early believers, even in Acts, start gathering on Sunday in honor of Jesus' resurrection, the first day of the week. And slowly that becomes the traditional day of worship in the church. Um, we would assume someone like Paul probably kept observing the Sabbath, but he didn't expect Gentile converts to do that. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure he participated in worship services on Sunday, too. Yep. And so, and gradually, that kind of becomes the universal practice in the church. But I suspect Messianic Jews also observe the Sabbath too. But wasn't that the focus of that Christ? I mean, Jesus on that Sunday and resurrection. Yeah, and I think you could argue, and I would argue, that they don't have to, but it's kind of like, a lot of things like memorizing scripture or fasting. I would say those are spiritual disciplines you don't have to do to be saved, but they may help you grow spiritually, and if they do, go for it. It's just when you start making rules where you tell other people you must do this or you're not saved that I think you get in trouble. And I think that was Paul's point about circumcision. I get mad when you tell people you must do this to be saved. But he did it to Timothy because he thought that would help advance Timothy's ministry. Yep. Yeah, so... One of the things, and I think this is clear in Scripture, is that in Romans 1, Paul makes the argument that every human being has failed to respond properly to whatever knowledge of God they have, and that through creation itself and other sources of what we call general revelation, every human being has some idea of the of the concept of God. 
and you know Isaiah and other passages imply no one really seeks after God in our fallen state due to original sin none of us of our own seek after God and I think John makes that point too if you do decide to believe in Jesus it's not something you did on your own it's because God drew you and you responded in faith to his drawing. So, I mean, one thing I think all Christians agree on is that let's take this hypothetical person that's never heard any direct specific revelation. They aren't going to be able to stand before God and say, you have no right to judge me. It's, more, it's a problem for us and our idea of whether God's fair. It's Right. Right. And if you listen to missionaries, sometimes they'll have stories of reaching a people group and finding out that they have something in their history that's very similar to the gospel that kind of explains the concept of grace. And there was even this book written once called The Peace Baby. Anyone remember? Peace Child. Anyone remember Peace Child? Why wasn't it Peace Baby? Wouldn't that be better, Peace Baby? (laughs) Peace Child. Anyone remember Peace Child? Yeah, we got a few. You know, it was these missionaries that came there, and there was this story, and I'm going to botch the story as bad as the title. But basically, there were these two tribes. They were at war, and they were killing each other, and it was awful. And they had this concept of, like, switching a child from one tribe to the other when they wanted to make peace, and that child represented the fact that they were putting aside their grievances, and it really embodied the idea of grace and salvation through a child, and the missionaries were kind of blown away by it. You hear stories like that. So who knows what God's up to with the people that haven't heard. We're not in that camp because we're all sitting here with this. And so what we need to know is that we're responsible for responding to this. And that's why I think scripture has the focus it does. But these are very interesting and difficult questions. And it's understandable why people talk about them. Because if you love God, you want other people to love him. And you don't like it when he's portrayed in a negative way. And so I think that's what... Christians are wrestling with when they talk about these questions. Anything else? Yeah, we'll start over there and then come back to Doug. Right. <laughs> we believe that. So that's, you know, ultimately what we fall back on with these issues that we don't know the right answer to.
the, the one nuance I would add is I think what Paul's arguing about is turning back to Judaism instead of Jesus. And so that's the problem he had in Galatians. And it, it would have been a huge temptation in the first century when they were being told, you must choose between continuing to say you have faith in Jesus and being part of the Jewish community and being able to go to synagogue and go to temple. You have to choose one or the other. And I think Paul's very clear that if you have to choose, you need to choose Jesus. But I don't think he wanted people to be forced to make that choice. Right. I think so. But Christians disagree on how to put all this together. This is a big issue that requires you to kind of synthesize a lot of different passages, and so people put the jigsaw to puzzle together in different ways. Anything else along these lines? All right. All right, so let's move on. One of the other things that I think is interesting in light of this passage to think about as we work our way through the rest of the gospel is Judas Iscariot is going to present a special kind of case of the confluence of his choices, Satan's influence, divine hardening, all going on at the same time. Think about how Jesus has treated Judas throughout the gospel and how he continues to treat him through the rest of the gospel as you think about divine hardening. I mean, it's pretty incredible how much grace and opportunities Judas is given to stick with Jesus. I think that is an example of divine hardening working in ways we don't think about when we think about how that concept works. Okay, oh, one last problem. So verse 41 of chapter 12 says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So uh, most people agree that when it says Isaiah spoke about him, what it's talking about is the last servant song, which starts at the end of chapter 52 of Isaiah and goes to mm, chapter 53. And if you read it, and we don't have time to go through and read it, but it just incredible how closely it fits what Christians say happened to Jesus on the cross. So it starts by saying, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, one of John's favorite phrases, and highly exalted, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So, most people think John saying Isaiah spoke that it was a prophecy that's fulfilled by Jesus. What's harder is what he means when he says he saw Jesus' glory. And it looked to me like the most popular solution is to fall back on the Trinity and say that when Isaiah has this vision in the temple 
where he sees the glory of the Lord through the doctrine of the Trinity, that's equivalent to foreseeing Jesus' glory. I would offer a slightly different alternative. Don't know that it's right, but just food for thought. Uh, As we've seen earlier in the chapter and throughout the rest of the gospel, what John thinks of as Jesus' glorification is his death on the cross. That's where it starts. That's a really important part of the glorification. So perhaps he could be referring to the servant song as well when he says Jesus saw Jesus, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Because Isaiah, John argues that the cross is part of Jesus' glory. Even though we don't tend to think of that as a glorious moment in the life of Christ, John does. So those are the ways you could make sense out of that verse. No one knows for sure. This is an interesting counterpoint to the hardening that's happened to a majority of Israelites in verse 42. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love praise from men more than praise from God. So you can imagine what the huge debate about that little passage is. In what sense did they believe in Jesus? Are these genuine but secret believers? Or are they people that recognized Jesus' miracles were authentic but were not willing to take the final step to become a genuine believer because of their fear of being put out of the synagogue. We really don't know. Um, Some people try to answer it by appealing to the example of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, because those are examples of people in the leadership social sphere who seem to have had positive thoughts about Jesus Um, They're even willing to go to the council and ask for permission to bury Jesus' body. So one counterpoint to looking at, to using them as the example of a secret, genuine believer is it's not really clear they were secret. Looks like they took a pretty big risk when they went to the council and asked for permission to bury Jesus' body. So they may just be an example of a genuine, not secret believer in the leadership camp. Um, I think one thing we can agree on is that these people are not presented by John as a model of believer. This isn't what he wants you to be. He doesn't want people to be people who think nice thoughts about Jesus on the inside but are not willing to take any sort of stand or experience any sort of suffering for Jesus. It's just the opposite. He's made it very clear that if you want to be a genuine follower of Jesus, what you need to do is be willing to suffer with him, including scorn from the world. So not a model, but I think what he wants you to understand is that this hardening he's talked about is not 100%, doesn't apply to 100% of the people in Jesus' generation. There are some Jews, enough that he can even use the word many, that do at a minimum recognize Jesus' miracles are authentic. 
And it's kind of similar to um, the passage in Romans where Paul says, look, there's still a remnant of Jews that recognize Jesus' claims are true and are believers, and I'm one of them. All right? Okay, let's keep going. Then Jesus cried out, and here we get a summary of the message he's been giving throughout the gospel. When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. So those are thoughts he's argued before, and we've talked about before. Jesus understands himself to be sent by God the Father to be doing what God the Father wants, to be representing what God the Father is. And Jesus consistently argues, if you believe in me and accept that message, that means you're accepting the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So again, this theme of light and dark that John likes, Jesus is there to offer you the opportunity to be sons and daughters of the light, to leave the realm of darkness controlled by Satan, to enter the realm of light where God the Father and Jesus are. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. And this is a theme in John 2 where Jesus emphasizes that he doesn't judge during his earthly ministry recorded in the Gospels. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Instead, Jesus emphasizes during his earthly ministry that his purpose in the incarnation is to provide the means of salvation. I would argue, if you look at other passages, he acknowledges and says, someday I will judge humanity. That will be at the day of resurrection, when I will be God the Father's agent of judgment that does what Terry talked about, you're either a sheep or you're a goat. You're either a follower or you're not. You're either in my kingdom or you're not. He does exercise judgment at that point, but not during the incarnation. He says, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. So what he is um, suggesting here is that his message acts as a basis for condemnation. And this kind of goes back to the life raft, life ring illustration I was talking about earlier. Um, Jesus has told people exactly how to be saved, exactly what the consequences are. So if you've heard that message when you face God on the day of judgment, the fact that you are told exactly how to be saved serves as a basis of condemnation for you. Okay? For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. This is a second basis for why his words um, are a source of condemnation that should have resonated with Israelites. I think if you had confronted an Israelite and said, if you reject the God of the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh, which they wouldn't have even been willing to say his name, if you reject that God, do you deserve to be condemned? I think 
the vast majority of Israelites would have said, yes, anyone who does that deserves to be condemned. What Jesus is saying is, that's what you've done if you've rejected me. Because I am doing exactly what that God wants, and I am acting out what he wants. So if you reject me, you've rejected him, you deserve judgment. The flip side is that his command leads to eternal life. So what Jesus wants is for you to believe his claims and grab the life ring and experience eternal life. So it's one sort of last laying out of here's the consequences of not accepting me, here's the blessing if you do accept me, please accept it. The time is now, the light is short, I'm going to be going away, there's going to be a time period of darkness, don't wait, you need to act now, and if you do, it leads to eternal life. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? All right, well, let's pause here. We're a little bit early, so I'll give you a free shot. If anything I've said causes concerns, you want to ask a question, go ahead. All right, too late. No more. (laughs) So we'll stop here, and then we'll tackle the Last Supper next week.